I know a lot of Christians that just wish and hope that nobody will ask them if they're a Christian or not or why they're different. We had a young fellow that was totally successful in high school. He got letters in every sport, track, football, basketball, everything. I mean, that guy had so many letters, he looked like he had an alphabet soup for a sweater. Every year he got all the stars and the letters and everything else. And he came to church one night, and we were having revival meetings, and they talked about being lukewarm. And that man, I thought, if that young fellow, if there's anybody that's successful, it's got to be him, because everybody liked that boy. Everybody. And he stood and wept one night and asked the church to forgive him and to pray for him because he said, you know, I'm afraid somebody might not like me or somebody might make fun of me if I get up and witness that I'm a Christian. And I had somebody this last week say, Billy, why are you so different from the rest of the guys? Why don't you go out and cuss and smoke and drink like the rest of them? And he says, well, because well, those things just don't interest me. He said, I really missed it. Here was a young fellow that was looking to me and to find the answer that I had found, and I was ashamed to tell him about Jesus Christ. He was totally successful as far as the high school was concerned, but he felt like a total disaster as far as God was concerned because he had lost the burden to witness to other people around him. And then, loss of spiritual sensitivity. I can still remember seeing many, many people when they first came to Christ, very careful. Brother Webb, what about this? Can, what, 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 what should I do about this aspect? I'm going to be going to this situation. How should I act? How should I, what does the Word say about this? Very, very sensitive to things about them because they wanted to please the Lord. And boy, you try to hang sin on them or some worldly pleasure on them, and it's just like water on a duck's back. They just didn't want anything to do with it. They'd get away from it. They'd flee from it. And if they found out that they had done or said something wrong, they'd break down and cry. I used to remember a man in my home church Brother Billy, he was a farmer. You talk about a tender heart. If he even got the hint that something he said had caused another brother to be offended or to stumble, Brother Billy would go back to those persons and wrap his arms around them and weep on their shoulder and ask them, Will you please forgive me? I really didn't mean that. I didn't mean to hurt you. How could I have possibly offended you? Will you please tell me? I'll do anything I can to make it right. I saw that man sit there when other people would be hurting and tears flowing down his face. And when other people got saved, just tears flowing down his cheeks. Billy's gone to be with the Lord since then. Then I've seen the same people with excitement like that before long come around and you almost hear them say, am I my brother's keeper? Well, if he's weak, that's his problem. Look, I can do what I want to do, all things in moderation, and whatever they want to do, that's up to them. But I, I'm not going to get that albatross hung around my neck and worry about what happens to them. I hear them say, you know, the church is just getting negative. The church is just coming into bondage, and it's getting so narrow-minded that any way you turn, they're going to criticize you now. One time so sensitive to what the Spirit of God would say about sin and worldliness, and then they just slowly slipped away, and they begin to condone, and they begin to make excuses for questionable practices. Now, this is an outward sign of what happens when a person begins to come into backsliding. Would you look... In Revelation, the second chapter with me before I close this morning. You know, the Word of God calls backsliding losing your first love. Losing your first love is backsliding. The Church of Ephesus, Revelation, the second chapter, verses 1 through 7. John, the, the beloved on the Isle of Patmos, received these letters to be sent out to the seven churches of Asia Minor. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day when the Lord spoke to him. 
And this was a letter to go to the church of Ephesus, which Paul started. And by the way, they did not heed this warning. And today there is no evidence of the church of Ephesus anymore. The Lord did what he said he's going to do. Take the candlestick away. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. You see, they were good Christian people. How thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience for my name's sake, hast labored, and hast not fainted. That's not a very bad reputation, is it, as a church? Look at that. Whoo, they judged men that came in to try to preach to them, make sure they were really apostles or not. And they carried the load. They were patient for his name's sake. They labored and they had not given up yet. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast what? Left thy first... You're backslidden is what he's saying. You're still going on with all the outward evidences. You're still going on with all the outward works, all the mechanics of the church life, but you're backslidden. You've left your first love. Now here's the solution. Remember... First of all, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Go back and remember what you once did before the Lord and how you once served the Lord and how excited you were and how sensitive you once were to sin and to being obedient to me. Remember and what? Repent. What does that mean? Get back there. Completely repent. Turn around. Get back to that place. Remember where you were. Don't stand here and say, oh, I remember the good old days. He says, get right back where you were. Remember, repent, and do the what? Do what you did before when you were excited about me and you loved me with that first love. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Except thou repent. That's backsliding. When the day comes that you can remember a time when you were closer to the Lord, more excited about the things of the Lord, and more sensitive to sin, and more sensitive to the leading of the Spirit than you are today, God's saying you've left your first love and you're in a backslidden condition. Now, we should not just be concerned about ourselves, but we should be concerned also about our brother and sister. We should be concerned and learn what God's Word has to say as to how we should reprove them and restore them. That's why I put this one down at the bottom and I'll move it up here. The mark of spirituality is not whether we are able to expose a brother, but whether we are able to restore him. The mark of spirituality is not whether we're able to expose a brother, but whether we are able to restore him. And we're going to be talking about restoring a brother tonight. But I want to just stop now and ask you this morning, could God be writing that letter to you as he did the church of Ephesus? Remember and repent. Get back to where you were. Are you as excited about the things of the Lord this morning as you once were? Do you find it hard to come to church or do you find it exciting to be around God's people? Do you look for opportunities to stay away or do you look for opportunities to get around other responsibilities and get to be with God's people? Do you look earnestly for that opportunity to get alone with the Lord and study His Word and pray and meditate on the Word of God and let Him, the Spirit of God examine your heart in your interpersonal relationships with other believers? Or would you just as soon, you just as soon say, Lord, take my life and let it be? As you know, this morning we started talking about the last half of the ninth conviction. 
having our words harmonized with God's word, especially when reproving and restoring a Christian brother. And we started talking about the need of restoring a Christian brother, and we said that the problem that happens in many churches is we don't catch and understand early enough the signs and indications of backsliding that we might be able to go to a brother and encourage him or reprove him or correct him to bring him into a place of obedience to the Lord. And so I wanted you to see this morning the four basic causes for backsliding, the five outward evidences of backsliding, and then what is the cost of backsliding. This morning we got through the five outward evidences, and we want to talk about the cost of backsliding. We talked this morning about the fact of the Church of Ephesus backsliding. And the Lord said that the first thing was to do was to remember, the second thing was to repent, and the third thing was to go back and do the first works again. The first thing that we should recognize when we see a brother backsliding, the first thing that we should contemplate as a possibility would be that it's evidence that his original experience was not a genuine new birth experience. If you see someone who's continually stumbling, continually falling in and out, back and forth, up and down, never seeming to have confidence, never seeming to have assurance in his heart, one of the first things that you might consider and pray about is to look to see if and talk to them and find out if that first experience they had was a genuine Christian experience. Very important because today in many, many churches, just talked to a person recently about this very thing. He went to the church under deep emotional problems. He went to the altar. He would have gone to the altar if he had stood up and just quoted poetry because he was seeking some help from God, some force, some power. He needed someone's help. He went to the altar. He knelt down. Someone prayed with him and said, Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. And when he stood up, he said, You need to be baptized. He was baptized. He joined the church. And everybody came up and hugged him and said, You're a Christian now. And the man was just in a total disarray spiritually. And many times you'll find this. Dr. E.J. Daniels was the head deacon in the First Baptist Church of Winter Park for 11 years before he found out he wasn't saved. And he wondered why he was always having trouble, up and down, back and forth. He said he couldn't get stabilized. He never had any assurance. And whenever anybody talked about knowing that you know that you know that you're saved, it just, he just got a lot of turmoil inside of him. I say that we should see if that first one experience they had was genuine, if they really repented and really declared that Jesus Christ was Lord. Now, there are scriptures that, that indicate that there's going to be a mixture within the church that are coming into our fellowship. If you'll look at Matthew, the 13th chapter with me for a moment. Matthew 13, beginning with verse 24. Matthew 13, 24. I could also share with you the fact of Judas. Judas was not only amongst the apostles, but Judas went out and cast out demons and laid hands on people and they were healed, made all sorts of confessions, had all sorts of ministries, was with Jesus, was the one who carried the money for the apostles, and yet Scripture says he was a son of perdition in the midst of the apostles. I could talk also about what Jesus said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But here in verse 24, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, it then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? 
But he said, Nay, lest while we gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, so gather the wheat into my barn. I am told that when tares grow, at the very first, they look exactly like wheat. And they'll grow up together, and it isn't until it comes almost to the, the time of fruit that you begin to notice a distinction between the wheat and the tares. And the servants immediately wanted to go out and pull out all the tares. How many of you know, if you go out into a lawn and try to pull out the weeds, you tear up a lot of the lawn? If you go out into a garden and try to pull up the big weeds, you pull up the vegetables also. And Jesus said, no, don't do that. Leave them right where they are. I see the difference. I know which is the wheat and which is the tares. And when the harvest comes, then we will take the tares away from the wheat, separate them, and we'll burn the tares, and we will harvest the wheat. Which gives indication that many, many times within the church there are tares that need to be witnessed to, need to be evangelized. And I'll assure you today that one of the greatest mission fields in the country, in this country, is the evangelical churches. I shouldn't just say evangelical churches, the church. The church today is a real mission field to where we could get away from constantly trying to convince people that they are saved for eternity. Now, I believe I'm saved for eternity, but I, I don't feel that I need to get up on the pulpit and jump up and down and up and down and up and down declaring how secure and how sound and how safe you are. I just believe that if I declare you the whole counsel of God, that you're to live in holiness, and the Scripture says without holiness no man shall see the Lord before long, the Spirit of God can begin to speak to you and show you if you really are saved or lost. If I declare to you the fact that before a person can be saved, there's a need of repentance, and you've never repented before long, you'll realize why you are the way you are, and you'll get saved. So that's the first thing we should look at to try to encourage them to reassess that original experience they had. Now, I, I've, in, in my evangelism for years, when I go out, I have never tried to reestablish an old experience. If I have somebody coming to me and say, well, I thought that I invited Jesus in my heart back there. I thought that I made a decision back there. I'll say, look, let's just set that aside right now. Let's make sure that we make that commitment right now. Why don't you repent of your sins right now? Why don't you declare that from this day forward, Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, and you drive a stake tonight, and you write it in your Bible on such and such a day, I repented of my sins, I invited Christ into my life, I made him Lord of my life tonight, and I said, you'll never have to go back and say, did I or didn't I back there? You can establish that you did it once for all. Now, I know that when I first became a Christian, the devil whipped the daylights out of me over that thing. He had kept taking me back there and telling me that I wasn't really saved. And so I just went to the altar one night and said, well, if I wasn't, I'm going to be. The second thing that we need to do is to know the cost of backsliding. And that's what we're talking about here. Know the cost of backsliding. If we begin to understand the seriousness of backsliding or losing our first love, then we'll realize that we don't dare let one another slip away from the Lord. If we realize that it's not just playing games, but it's a serious matter, It'll motivate us to prayer and concern and a willingness to go and encourage and help out that other and correct that other person in love. The cost of backsliding. What is the cost of backsliding? First of all, if a person backslides, the Word of God says you can expect some chastening in your life. It's impossible to look anywhere in the Word of God but what you will find that when people began to backslide that they were chastened of the Lord. Sooner or later, one way or another, God is going to chasten that person. If you'll look in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, it's very clear 
That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 11 chapter also, judge yourselves that you be not judged. Chastening is a sure return from the Lord when we are disobedient to him. Hebrews the 12th chapter, verses 5 through 7. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised for those which are that profit from it. All right, the scripture says the first thing that we can absolutely look for is chastening. But God doesn't do it just to get even with it. Every bit of chastening that will come to a believer is a chastening to restore us to a right relationship with him. You know, it's never right. And I tell parents, whenever you're chasing your children, if you chasten them in anger, you're sinning just as much as they did when they disobeyed you because you're disobeying God. Never chasten your children in anger. If you've got to deal with anger, you go out somewhere and get alone and deal with that anger and settle it down and come back and then deal with them concerning the issues. What did I tell you you should not do? What did you do? That was disobedience. Because of that disobedience, I have to punish you. I don't want to, but I must punish you. Because I don't want you to do that. I want you to be what the Lord wants you to be in the days ahead. And I want you to know right from wrong, and when you do wrong, that there's going to be punishment. When you do right, there's going to be blessings. And if I don't punish you, then God's going to chasten me because I'm disobedient to him. But it has no place for anger. When God chastens his children, he does it because he loves us and he wants to restore us to a fellowship with him. Now, it can take different methods. I believe the Lord chastened Jonah when he sent a fish after him. I believe the Lord chastened Peter when he sent a rooster after him. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have thee that he might sift thee as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. There are times when the Lord knows that we're going to go through some real testing and some real trial, and he's always praying for us, but when he sends chastening, it's for our good. It might be in the form of pain. It might be in the form of some suffering. It might be in the form of sickness. And there are some people, of course, that always say that if you get sick, then there must be sin in your life. I don't believe that's necessarily so. Sometimes it happens. But I'll tell you one thing. I appreciate what Brother Ed said some time ago when someone talked to him about it. He said, God doesn't have to do something to me and not tell me why he's doing it. If I ever get sick, God will tell me why I am sick if he's doing it to me. And I believe that. I don't know of one father that would go around and hit their kid up the side of the head and the kid look at him and say, why would you do that? None of your business. And hit him again. Why would you do that, Dad? Well, don't worry about it. I'm doing what I want to do. And our father loves us more than we love our children and he doesn't go around slapping us side of the head and saying to us, none of your business why I'm doing this. When he chastens us, he'll tell you why you're being chastened. I've gone to hospital rooms and had some people say to me, Pastor, don't say anything. I know I deserved it. This is exactly what the Lord said was going to happen to me if I didn't straighten up. Well, praise the Lord. You ready to straighten up? 
But the Lord can bring this chastening to us, and many times it will come in financial ways. Let me tell you, I said it this morning, he's the one that gives the power to get well. And I know he can shut that spigot off tight as a drum, or he can open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing such as we cannot contain. That's why he sends it along. You remember in 1 Corinthians 11, that's what he's talking about when he brings that chastening. It's for us to bring us to a point of repentance, a place of turning, a place of coming back to the Lord and being restored to him. And when he was talking to the church of Corinth, he said, your communions are completely out of order. Why, there's drunkenness and selfishness and gluttony. You all get together and get around the table, those of you that have things, and you eat as much as you can. You gorge on it, and then you get drunk on the wine and stuff. If you're going to have that kind of party, stay home. That's not the table of the Lord. That's the table of Satan. You act like Christians when you come together. He went on to say, for this very reason, for the way you've been acting, many are sickly among you. For this very reason. God has been chastening you. God has been judging you because of this disobedience. Chastening will come. The second thing, the cost of backsliding. When a person backslides and refuses to get straightened out, he may die prematurely. He said, for this cause many are sickly among you, and many what? You think that Ananias and Sapphira were so old that they dropped over dead from old age? How many of you believe that? What happened? They went too far, didn't they? 1 John 5, 16 says there is a sin unto death. 1 John 5, 16, there is a sin unto death. Let me read that to you from the Living Bible. There is the one sin which ends in death, and if he has done that, there is no use praying for him. And then verse 17, every wrong is a sin, of course. I'm not talking about these ordinary sins. I'm speaking of that one that ends in death. Now, I'm sure Ananias and Sapphira had done things wrong before, but when they came before Peter and said to him, yes, we've given all the money that we got from the property, and they didn't have to lie about it. They could have said, no, we decided we're just going to give half of it and keep the rest for ourselves. But they lied, and Peter said, why have you lied to the what? Woo! You know something? A lot of times people don't realize that they're not lying to a person when they lie to God's representatives. How many of you know there's a difference? Jesus said, he that receiveth you receiveth me. And they that receive me receive him that sent me. You ever wondered whether you're very important or not? If God tells you to go somewhere in his name, if the Lord speaks to you and says, go and witness to that person, and you walk up to that person, and they reject your message, who do they reject? And what did Jesus say you should do if you go into a town and they don't listen to your message? If he sent you there and you're supposed to witness there and they don't listen to you, what are you supposed to do? Shake the dust off your feet and what will happen? It will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for them, won't it, in the day of judgment? Now, you know something? We try to spiritualize those things sometimes, but I believe it's so. I know of experiences where I have shaken the dust off my feet. The Lord told me to do it, and I thought, well, this is kind of funny. And I just shook the dust off my feet and went on, and later on, disasters took place to that particular situation where they rejected a message that was brought to them. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, and both of them were buried immediately. That's part of the cost of backsliding. Then, thank God, there's a brighter note here, and that is why we should try to encourage and build up the backslider and get them to repent. Proverbs 28:13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth 
and forsaketh them shall have mercy. If you've never marked that verse down in your Bible, I want you to mark it down, would you? Underline it. Proverbs 28:13. I heard a man misquote that not too long ago. He left out and forsaketh. And that's a very important aspect of it. That's the repentance part. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh it shall have mercy. Or the living Bible says shall have another chance. God says, I don't beat on you and I don't chasten you to drive you away from me. I do that to bring you to me. And if you'll repent, if you'll forsake that sin, confess it and forsake it, I'll have mercy on you. In 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, Paul talks about the young man who was having an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. Remember that? And Paul says, you're going around rejoicing everything. You ought to be weeping before God. You ought to have sackcloth and ashes on. You ought to really be moaning before God and crying out to God for mercy because of this situation instead of going around like there's nothing wrong. And he said, you need to deal with that situation. You need to bring correction to that young man. Discipline. Now, that's not a much-used word today in the church. But he said you need to discipline that young man. And in the fifth chapter, in the fifth verse, he says, Deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the church went ahead and disciplined this young man. And what happened? They put him out of the fellowship. They said, Now put him out, but don't totally ignore him. Continue to try to tell Let him know you love him and so forth, but... Let him know, you know, until you repent of this thing, confess this sin and repent of it and put it away from you, you cannot be a part of this fellowship. And I'll tell you, that's hard on the mercies and the gifts of mercy in the body. Discipline is very hard for those with a motivational gift of mercy, and that's why the motivational gift of mercy always has to say, what does the Word say? Contrary-wise, the prophet, they're always ready to do that, and they've always got to go over and find out, how can I do this in the gentlest way? How can I do it and still show love? I mean, I might have authority, but if I don't show a love with that authority, I'm nothing. Two ends of the bracket there, see? And they, they put the man out. And what was the end result of it? Second Corinthians. Paul writes to them a second letter. He says, now, he's repented. Now, you forgive him. You comfort him. Bring him back in. Confirm your love to him. Restore him. How I thank God that in the body of Christ, when chastening comes to the believer, we can go to that person and when we find them in a backslidden condition and encourage them to repent, confess that sin and repent, and be able to confidently tell them, if you'll do that thing, Proverbs 28, 13 says, God will start all over with you again. God will give you another chance. There's hope here. Somebody still trying to read that little writing down there? I put that there this morning and said... The mark of a spirituality is not whether we are able to expose a brother, but whether we're able to restore him. Praise the Lord. To restore him. Now, how are we going to restore this brother? It's got to be consistent with the Word of God. It's got to be harmonizing with the Word of God, or it's not going to have a lasting result. But if you want to find out how to begin to restore someone... You have to go find the answer in the forgotten truth of Matthew 18. This is one of the sheets that comes from the Bill Gothard seminar. I believe it's the advanced seminar, if I'm not mistaken. It talks about restoring him. If you look at Galatians 6.1, Galatians 
It tells us, first of all, that there's a certain type of person that should go. Galatians 6, 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual. I wonder if there's a spiritual club in some churches. That's a four. We're the spiritual ones in the church. No, you just got disqualified. <laughs> if you feel that, that you and I, us four and no more, are the spiritual ones in the church, we got problems right away. Because the scripture says that the truly spiritual person is the person who serves others. The person who gives place to others, puts others before themselves, the servant of all. And I've had a lot of people that have come to my ministry from time to time where I've been preaching and so forth, and they wanted places of leadership and places of ministry, and I would begin to tell them that there were jobs available, sweeping sidewalks, cleaning the, law, the nursery out, taking care of the babies, helping clean up after parties, helping to clean the church and so forth. They said, no, 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 that's not my ministry. My ministry is exhortation and preaching and teaching. Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself also, lest thou be tempted. That is the basic groundwork upon which we must operate. But in Matthew, the 18th chapter, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, let me read that for you. Moreover, if thy brother, now by the way, that brother, somebody with whom you have a trust relationship, this word brother here means someone with whom you have a trust relationship. With whom should that be? Other believers. Shouldn't we have a trust relationship with one another? I guarantee you, if we can't trust one another, we're in trouble. If we're truly born again and committed to Jesus Christ. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. That's the beginning of it, restoring a brother. The first thing is, if your brother, and I like what Bill put there, these neglected steps if followed would answer Christ's prayer in John 17, says that they all might be one. But the problem is, this is a very, very difficult thing to follow. It says, if your brother. I really believe that the world expects loyalty between Christians sometimes more than Christians expect loyalty be between Christians. I know God expects us to be loyal to one another. I believe the world expects us to be loyal to one another. Now, the world knows what loyalty is and commitment is to one another. They have lodges and secret orders of which I could not become a part today who are committed to one another. If they find someone that's having difficulty, they will rush to their help and encourage them and build them up and help them and strengthen them because they have made a pledge one to another. These neglected steps if followed, would answer Christ's prayer in John 17. The world knows what it is to be committed to people. And many, many times I've had them say, well, do you know something? They can't even get along with each other in that church down there. I don't understand that. I've had them say, what's the matter with you guys? You've got three Baptist churches in town, four Baptist churches in town. Why can't you guys just all get together? Of course, we kid and say, well, when... Abraham and Lot broke up in the wilderness as the beginning of the Baptist church, and they've been splitting ever since, and we get a lot of fun out of that thing, see? But Satan has done a choice job to bring us into the experience of the Corinthian church today. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas. Thank God through the movement of God, the Holy Spirit, going back into all the denominations today and doing a new work of the Holy Spirit. We have sat around lately with Methodists, 
and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Lutherans and all of the things. Look, it doesn't make any difference about that little tag anymore. We're one because we both declare Jesus is Lord. And so it isn't speaking about just a brother here, but it's as if you're brother. Are there other Christians that are not a part of this particular body that we should have a trust relationship with? It's talking about them too then, isn't it? All right, those that you know who are Christians out on the street that you work with, that you meet from day to day, live in your community, may go to another fellowship, but you know that you know that they have been born again of the Spirit of God and you get that witness in your spirit. The Word of God tells us that we should be willing to lay down our lives for our brethren. That's quite a commitment to each other, isn't it? 1 John 3.16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Galatians 6.10, we are to do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. This is like an acid test. To find out if we really have a trust relationship with one another, it would mean that we will expend ourselves to, to the place where it costs us gladly for someone with whom we have a trust relationship. It's a real blessing from time to time to see how just within this body alone there are people that will give of themselves selflessly to others in the body when they see a need. What a thrill it was to see the rallying that came in within the spirit of the body here last Sunday when we asked for support for the Hammonds. And by the way, I announced this morning, I can announce again tonight that God allowed us the privilege of sending them $750. And I wish it could have been much more. But it was a time of desperate need, and I believe that other churches that have had the Hammonds in their church have also sent them money, and we're trusting that we'll get a report from them concerning it. The second thing, if your brother, that's someone with whom you have a trust relationship, shall trespass against you, hamartano is the Greek word hamartano, which means a specific act of sin. They specifically sinned against you. It also means to miss the mark. It also means to cause one not to share in the prize. They're the reason why you didn't share in the prize also. So it has several meanings to it. It says, if they did it against you. Now, there's the loophole that some people look for. Well, it says there, if they did it against me. May I tell you something? It's impossible for any saint, true saint of God today, to sin without it offending or hurting you. No Christian is an island unto himself. I don't enjoy it when I read in the paper that a pastor, Reverend such and such, has fallen into deep sin, even if he's of another denomination. I don't enjoy seeing that evangelist such and such has run off and scoundered with a bunch of money or the piano player or the secretary of the church. I don't enjoy reading that because even though they may live in another community, even though they may be of another denomination, the world looks at that and says, see, that's those preachers. It's impossible for you and me to sin without it offending another person around us. So we can't just say, well, you know, a lot of times we tend to just say, well, they didn't do anything against me, so we just ignore it. And it says here that if they trespass against us. Remember when David sinned with Bathsheba? Remember, remember how he had sinned against her? And the prophet came to David in Second Samuel, and he said, Thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the land to blaspheme. David, because you did this, now you have, you've influenced everyone 
because they knew that your relationship with God was supposed to be so strong. And in doing this, you have caused all the nations around us to begin to blaspheme God. There is that man after God's own heart. Look at him, groveling over there like, like a, a hog in the pen, blaspheming God. So that's what God's heart is like. And so we say, well, he didn't sin against me, so I'm not responsible. I don't have to get involved. Romans tells me, Romans chapter 12, verse 5, tells me that we are, we being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Isn't that what it says in the Word? So if we know, if we see, if we sense a brother or a sister are struggling and beginning to backslide or beginning to sin against the Lord or sin against us, he tells us the next statement, loud and clear. Ignore it. Is that what it says? What does it say? Go to him. Call the pastor and have him go to him. Call Ed and Skip and have them go to him. Call their wives and have them go to her. That's what it says. If you see a brother sin against you, you go to him or her. A lot of times we'll see it happen, and in our mind we'll pass judgment and say, boy... That sucker's getting in trouble. Hmm. Well, it's his own tough luck if he gets in trouble. We'll just pass it off and say, nothing I can do about it. Just go on, forget it. You want to know something? The greatest test of genuine love is to be willing to go. And we'll give you a comparison. How many of you know that the parent that lets their kids get away with anything don't really love their kids? How many of you know that? How many of you love a brat? Strange, no hands. <laughs> and there are times when you see kids that just have fire ants in their britches. They never can stand still. Just jump all over the place, you know. And the parents oblivious to it. And you sit there and go, whoo You feel like saying, look, that's your kids. Can't you see what they're doing? Then you go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and have not love. The same thing is true when it comes to a brother or a sister that you see are walking in disobedience. Don't say you love them if you aren't willing to go to them. It takes an act of love. That parent is responsible to go. You and I are responsible to go. Now, it's one thing to go to him. It's another thing to know how to go to him. And I'm not going to be able to get into how to go to him and still get done tonight, I wouldn't have time to quit if I did. But that's the, the most important thing. It, I want you to know tonight before we're through, though, that God expects you and me to go to that person that we see sinning against the Lord, offending us, walking in disobedience. But there are some specific steps that are involved that we have to go through before we go to that person. And I want you to be praying with me that the Lord will help me to be able to lay this out in such a way that it will be simple enough so that you can go away saying, I have no excuse. Now I know what I'm to do, I know how I'm supposed to do it, and I will be obedient to the Lord. You know something? That's how revivals can begin if we do it in the right spirit. Father, thank you that we don't have to guess. We can know what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. If we'll just know the Word of God and it becomes a conviction with us that we are our brother's keeper, that you want us to go to those who are fallen away from their first love, 
those that are sinning against us and offending us and that if we go with the right attitude with the right heart and mind that you can cause revival to come into our lives and into the church we commit this truth to you tonight and I pray Father that there be any here tonight who sense in their own lives a coldness and an indifference a couldn't care less attitude that you begin to minister to their spirits and make them to realize that you're getting ready to do a tremendous work in the body of Christ in these days and that we want to be in that position where we are obedient and responsive I pray Father that you'll give me insight and understanding and wisdom to know the right spirit in which I must operate Lord I thank you that you placed in my heart that 13th chapter of 1st Corinthians and spoke to me about it just recently and I want to respond and I want to be obedient let the love of Christ totally permeate every area of my ministry because I know there can only be fruit that comes out of such a, a love in a, in a person's life I commit this hour to you and ask that you administer to us and strengthen us and cause us to be what you want us to be in Jesus' name we ask it for his sake. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When you see a person overtaken in a fault. Now, by the way, there's a difference between being overtaken in a fault and to find someone wallowing in sin. But if you see someone that has stumbled, someone that has fallen into a sin and is struggling, then they which are spiritual should go and minister to that person in the spirit of meekness. And I said that when we do these things in restoring a Christian brother, reproving and restoring, we have to do it in harmony with God's Word. How many of you know there's a right way and a wrong way to try to restore someone? You see, if you go and try to bring them under guilt and condemnation, that's one way. The other aspect is to go and minister to them, considering thyself also, lest thou be tempted. Going to that person saying, but by the grace of God, there I go. And some people say, Brother Webb, not me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't start in that direction. Watch out. Who art thou that judgest another? For thou that judgest another, you're going to be, you do the same things also. And as you judge, so shall you be judged. Whatever measuring tape you use on them, God's going to use that same measuring tape on you. If you ever want to learn mercy, you begin to realize that principle of God's judgment. However you judge someone else, they're going to, God's going to judge you and me. In Matthew, the 18th chapter we were talking about last week, and when we started in, the first thing it said, if your brother, there must be a commitment to others who are in Christ Jesus, there must be a concern, because we are part of one another. We cannot say, well, that's not my responsibility, I'm not going to get involved. The scripture says that we're already involved. How can I say, well, that's my little toe, and I'm not going to get involved with that because this, I'm the left hand. Why should I be involved with my right little toe? 
It's just as foolish to say that because we are members one of another in Jesus Christ. So there has to be a commitment. If your brother shall trespass against you, Matthew 18, verse 15, that's a definite sin, a definite act against you. Won't get into that again. Go to him. Go to him. Now that's where we ended up last week. You just got started on go to him and quit. I said, this is one of the most difficult aspects of this command to follow. It's very easy to see somebody do something, pass judgment on them in our mind and say, boy, they are a scalawag. They pulled that on me. God will get them for it. And then go off and forget about it. The scripture says if someone has sinned against you or me, that it becomes our requirement. Now, let me tell you, I know it's hard to do because I've told people down through my years of ministry, if that person has offended you, go to them. And time and time again, how many of you know it's hard to go to someone when they've done something against you, huh? Oh, you'd rather take a beating than go and talk to someone. Why? Because Satan tries to keep those things that divide in the dark. Satan will always tell us, boy, you go to them and they're just going to explode. They're going to get all over you like ugly all over an ape. They're just going to turn loose on you. They're going to just jerk you from one end to the other. They won't like you anymore. He'll lie to you to get you not to obey God's word. If your brother shall trespass against you, leave him alone. No. Go to him. That's what the scripture says. Now, before you get there, though, it says that you and I ought to do something. Romans the second chapter. Romans, the second chapter. That's what we talked about just a moment ago. We have to be very careful about the attitude with which we go. If you go up to someone and say, hey, buddy, you just offended me. And if I know of some other guy that did that to me a few years ago, and I want you to know he is in the hospital for three weeks. We're not going to get any kind of a, a rapport going there that we can even uh, uh, distantly relate to what the Scripture says, can we? So we have to go with the proper attitude. Romans, the second chapter, verses 1, and one 2, and 3. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest dost, doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Now, turn over to Matthew, the seventh chapter, a moment. Matthew, the seventh chapter. Start with verse 1. Matthew 7, 1. Now, by the way, I want you to know we're going to get into it a little further later on. We're not talking about discerning. We're talking here about being judgmental. There's a difference between discerning and being judgmental. Judge not that ye be not judged. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge you shall be judged, and with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Now, hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye. Again, I told you that I know Jesus had a sense of humor. He was giving a very illustrious illustration, almost a humorous illustration. He said, I'm going to tell you what you're doing, 
you're going up to a fellow who just got a little fleck of sawdust in his eye, and as you walk up to him, you've got this telephone pole stuck in your own eye, and you say, hey, come here, I want to help you get that, that little speck of sawdust out of your eye. Now stand still while I get that speck of sawdust out of you. That's what the Lord was saying. He says, you're going around carrying this great big old telephone pole sticking in your eye, and you're saying, here, I want to heal and get minister to you so you can get straight. He says, now, first of all, you be careful when you go judge someone else, because as you judge them, you're going to be judged, and if you've got this great big beam, this great big pole sticking in your eye, quit going around trying to get flecks out of other people's eyes. First of all, consider that pole that's in your own eye. And if you can get that out, then all of a sudden, when you recognize what you had in your eye, when you go to that other brother, you're going to be able to hurt with him, you're going to be able to feel with him or her, and you're going to be able to understand where they walk. And you'll come in a totally different attitude of mind. The first thing is, we have to examine ourselves. Before we go, it says, examine yourself completely. Have we failed in this area? You say, never. Be careful. Now, I'm not talking about the outward manifestation of what you saw take place. I'm talking about the root cause of why they did what they did. You and I may do one thing that's different from theirs, but the root cause may be the same. We may react differently, but it may be because of the same root cause. There may be hurt in our lives, and some people with hurt will react with anger. Other people with hurt will react with going into themselves and not talking to anyone. But the same root problem is there. You see? Loneliness may be in our life. Some people with loneliness will go out and try to be in parties and, and, and just be around people and minister to people, work with people all the time. Others will go off and try to have a false relationship based upon loneliness. And that one person standing with loneliness who wants to go out and minister to everybody to be around people all the time will say, how can that person ever go off and have an illegitimate relationship like that? It's terrible. But they're having the same root problem. And it's loneliness. They're just expressing in a different way. And so when we begin to look at another person who has offended us, we must, first of all, the Lord says, go into our prayer closet and say, Lord, now they offended me. Why did that offend me? Are they dealing and manifesting a, in a different way the same root problem that I've got? Is there a root problem in my life? Is there a beam in my eye that I should see that you're trying to show me through their offense to me? First of all, you get you with me what I'm saying? They may manifest it differently, but it may be the same root problem. So the Lord wants you and me to go into the closet and say, Lord, why did that offend me? Is there an area here that I am weak in that you're trying to show me so that I can go to that brother and say, Brother, I understand where you are. Sister, I know why you acted and reacted the way you did. You and I have similar problems, and I've asked the Lord to help me with it. Is there some way that I can minister to you and help you in this situation? third thing is, that brother or sister that's offended us, have we really prayed for them? I've said it before and I'll say it again. Many, many times prayer will do much more than anything else. The Holy Spirit can put a person on the operating table, cut them up and put them back together and they're all right. If you and I go to them and cut them to pieces, we may get them all apart but we can't put them back together again and heal them. And that's why prayer is the answer many times rather than going and, and having a conflicting relationship with a person, when you find someone that, that, that you just have trouble relating to, 
you're struggling. Recognize they may be struggling also, and if you go to prayer and ask God to begin to minister to them and bless them and to give you a love and a compassion for that person, it may heal the need that's in that person's life. Do we really pray for one another like we ought to? Many times we fail to pray and we see somebody fall and we say, I knew that was coming because that person has just been a pain in the neck. Be careful how you judge. Be careful how we judge someone else. Now, can I tell you something? Uh, God has been getting all over me as I've been studying for this message. He may never touch you, but I want you to know i got footprints all over my back. It is so easy to come to the place where you just expect this and this and this and this, and that's not the way it is. 1 Samuel 12, 33 says, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Wouldn't that be a nice motto to have between brothers and sisters in Christ? God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Do we pray for one another? Do you have a prayer list at home that you pray for? I've got a little card standing up on the front of my desk uh, written on both sides with the names of the families in the church. And then I have that little Rodex file. The Lord just lays it on my heart. I'll go to prayer and I'll just begin to flick over family after family and I'll just pray for each family individually and say, Lord, somehow witness to my spirit how I can minister to that family and what the need in that family is. Lord, just somehow let me get closer to this family and help me to be sensitive to what, what they're going through right now. But even I don't do it enough. But what a heartache it is to have failed to pray for someone and then see them fall. Third thing is, if I go to that person, what will they sense in me? Will they sense an attitude of arrogance or pride like you down there? The Lord has sent me to straighten you out. You know, know something? That's where the greatest, the biggest turn-off switch is on any person when you come and begin to say, you down there. Well, I, want, I want to talk to you, and I want to, get your, I want to straighten your leash out. You've got some knots in your leash, and I want to straighten it out. You, just, you cannot minister to a person from that position. What will they sense when we come to them and talk to those that have offended us? Will they sense a lack of love in us? You know, I've had to talk to people from time to time. I'll say, what you say is beautiful. But the look that you get on your face when you do it. I wish that I could take a picture sometime when you're saying something to someone. It may be coming out of your mouth in love, but Satan twists it and puts it together with a look on your face. And when it gets in the ear of the other person, they feel that you're coming against them, that you're putting them down. It's where they can say, well, yeah, they want to get me straightened out, but they sure aren't really concerned about me. God wants us to go and minister to each other, but he wants to make sure that when we go, first of all, our beam, that pole is out of our eye. We recognize that possibly there's the same root problem. And then when we go to them, we can walk at the foot of the cross. And I want to tell you something. There are no steps at the foot of the cross. The ground is level there. And when we come to the foot of the cross, we come as two sinners who believe that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin, and we meet on that mutual basis. God's grace is sufficient for both of us. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Fourth thing is, when you come to that person, go to him. When you go, it's not going to be enough that you go to him because he offended you. 
It's not going to be enough that you go to him with an attitude of mutual understanding that it could happen to you also. And it's not enough to go and point out to him where he has been in error, but do you have some steps of correction for him that God has shown you that you can share with him that will give him some insight how to get back to where he ought to be? How would you like it if you went to a doctor and the doctor looked you all over and examined everything and said, yep, yep what? You got cancer. I've got cancer. Yeah, you got cancer. That'll be $35. Well, wait a minute, Doc. You just told me I had cancer. That's right. You sure? Absolutely sure. Here, I'll put it in writing. You've got cancer. Here you go. $35. $35. $350. $3,500. We'll see you again in six months if you're still alive. Doc, wait a minute. You just... Is it malignant? Yeah, it's growing very rapidly. Yes, it is. I, I put that in the report. It's growing very rapidly. What are you going to do about it? Well, I'm not going to do it. You just, I'm just telling you, you've got cancer. I know that that next day you'd come back to this church on Sunday and you'd say, hey, I have just met the most fantastic doctor. He tells you just exactly what's wrong with you. Well, what's wrong with you? I've got cancer. Well, what's he going to do about it? Well, he says he ain't going to do anything about it. He just wants me to know that I've got cancer. You wouldn't go back to that doctor on the bed. But many, many times we'll go to a person and say, boy, you've sinned against me and this is wrong in your life. Da, 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 da. Well, what can I do? But you do whatever you want. Don't expect me to tell you what to do. You do whatever you want to do. There should be within our hearts, God should put within our hearts something that will give them some instruction and direction in love and concern. This is what God has shown me and maybe it'll be a help to you. Some steps toward restoration. Six basic, now this is all Bill Gothard material, I want you to know. He talks about reproving and restoring a brother. Six basic indicators that expose a judgmental spirit. Six basic indicators that expose a judgmental spirit. Now, when you go to a person, it says, consider yourself also, lest you, that you yourself can be tempted also. Go in the spirit of meekness. And there are indicators that can tell you whether or not you have a judgmental spirit or a spirit and desire to try to correct that person in the spirit of meekness. The first one is, if his failure improves the opinion I have of myself, I'm judging. If his failure improves the opinion that I have of myself, well, that just goes to show you that he hasn't matured to the level that I'm at. I had someone say to me some years ago when the ladies were going through a ladies' course learning and studying how to walk closer to the Lord, be obedient to their husbands, and be good housewives, and have a good devotional time and everything. I was talking to one person that wasn't in it, and I said to them, with the deep interest you have in that, why aren't you in it? And they stated unequivocally, well, I right now am at the third level. When they get to the third level of the program, then I'll probably join because I'm there already. I thought, okay, I know some very, very spiritual gals that are in there right now that feel like they aren't even up to the first level. But this person said, well, when we get to the third level, I, I'll be there. And I thought, now, that's what it's talking about here. When you can compare and say, well, that, that little peon down there, one of these days they'll come to the level I'm at. Then you better look out because you're, on, you're not on the level you think you're on. If somebody else's failure makes you feel stronger, then you and I have got problems. Second, if his failure decreases my concern for the faults I know I have, I'm judging. How many of you have heard somebody say, well, <laughs> look, 
Everybody's doing it. I'm not the only one that's weak in that area. I mean, look at sister such and such, what she does. Look at brother such and such, what he does. I don't know why you're picking on me, for pity's sakes. If you got somebody, if you want to pick on someone, go get them. They're worse than I am. If you can say that about someone else, then you've got a judgmental spirit, and God can't bless that. Neither will you be able to minister to someone else. When someone falls into sin, they don't need someone to tell them. They already know they're in sin. What they need is to find a way out of it and know that somebody else is concerned about them. Quickly, if his failure gives me a desire to see that he's punished, I'm judging. God's going to get you for this, brother. You wait till the fire start under your feet. <laughs> when God lights that lighter under your feet, you're going to feel the heat. If you think Jesus had a crown of thorns, you wait till he lays it on you, sister or brother, for what you did. That's judging. He's not your servant. She's not your servant. I'll never forget about a farmer in Nebraska. A man came to the church and said, isn't such and such in your church? I said, yes. Boy, you really got something in that person. What's the matter? I went by and his... I believe it said something about his wagon had slid off the road into the ditch, and when I went by, he was cussing up a storm. Some Christian. What they didn't know is that when he jumped down, he was all upset. And just as the car went by, he started cussing, and as soon as the car got over the hill, he went on his knees and began to cry and ask God to forgive him and take that out of his life. He didn't want it there anymore. He was a new Christian. But you see, they had seen the one thing, and they didn't know what was in his heart. And they judged him as God's going to get him. Boy, he's some Christian. You call him a Christian. He was cussing. We look on the outward appearance. God looks on the what? You know, there's some people today that are living in sin that are absolutely hurting and miserable inside. They don't want to, but they've never found someone that loved them enough to be able to come and say, I love you right where you are. And God loves you right where you are. And God wants me to love you and show, let you know that there is a way of being restored. Four, if I'm eager to tell others about his failure, I'm judging. Isn't that easy to do? Isn't that easy to do? Three here, one out there. That's easy to do, isn't it? If it's easy and we're eager to tell about others about his failure, we're judging. Someone said it's easier to run to the phone than to the throne sometimes for Christians. And if we'd run to the throne instead of the phone, we could get a lot further in our spiritual walk with the Lord and in their spiritual walk with the Lord. Fifth, if his failure prompts me to review his past failures, I'm judging. What was it the husband said one time? I try my best to walk with the Lord, but every time I slip, my wife gets historical. The guy says, you mean hysterical. He says, I mean historical. She goes back and drags out every failure I've ever had in the past. I got hurt back there. Now I got hurt five years later. I got hurt ten years later. I got storing them all up. When she gets to the end of the classification, you did it again. And if we do that, we're judging. We have no idea of the conflict and the struggle that may be going on in that person's heart, but the very fact that they're continuing to desire to walk with God is evidence that they want to be what God wants them to be. If his failure causes me to feel that I cannot forgive him, I'm judging. Do you remember in the last part of the 18th chapter of Matthew the illustration that Jesus gives concerning this? He talked about the servant that owed his master something like $20 million. 
And his master called him in, and he said, Sir, I, I don't know how I'm ever going to do it, but somehow I'll repay you. And the master said, I forgive you completely. Just write it off. That man went out of there elated. He found one of his servants who owed him one day's salary. He grabbed him by the throat, began to choke him, and he said, You will pay me now. And he says, Give me some time. And he said, You have no time. Throw him into prison. The other servant who heard him do that to his servant went back to his master and said, You won't believe what just happened. You just forgave that guy $20 million. He went out and a fellow owed him one day's salary and he had him thrown in debtor's prison for him. He said, Call him back in here. He said, You wicked and perverse servant, I just forgave you $20 million and that man owed you maybe a dollar and a quarter and I forgave you $20 million and you won't forgive him one day's salary. He says, cast that man out into outer darkness, in a place of darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, get it. Listen. I'm going to stop and give the illustration. I mean the comparison first. He was comparing that $20 million to the forgiveness that Christ manifested to you and to me. That's God's forgiveness to us in comparison to our forgiving others for the trespasses against us as much many as 70 times 7 per day. The next verse says, So shall your heavenly Father do to you if you from your heart do not forgive those who trespass against you. It says he will turn you over to the tormentors if we do not forgive. If his failure causes me to feel I cannot forgive him, you have forgotten what God forgave you for. You have forgotten the huge debt that you and I have had to God. And he freely, through the blood of Jesus Christ, has forgiven and cleansed us. There is no offense that can come to you and me from another person but what it's equivalent to one day's salary against $20 million, Jesus said. Seven steps to turn judgment. Oops, I'm going to pull that down, aren't I? Seven steps to turn judgment into discernment. Very quickly, and then we're going to try to finalize here. If you sense there's judgment, it can be turned into discernment. First of all, recognizing that our impulse to judge rather than to discern is a signal that we do the same thing. The very thing we were talking about a while ago. If we tend to judge somebody rather than to discern what is the root problem and be able to use that to minister to them, then we're judging. Secondly, determine the root cause of the actions. We are judging pride, selfishness, lack of love, greed, etc. Bill Gothard has brought out a truth there that has been so important for families to learn, and that is that there, when you see the outward evidence of a problem, I'm going to lay this on there so I can keep it down, when you see the outward evidence of a problem, that's not the root problem. Why does a person react strongly? Why is a person jealous? Why is a person greedy? There is a root problem to that. And if you haven't been to a Bill Gothard seminar to study root problems, then you're going to have difficulty understanding why people act and react the way they do. Your husband, your wife, your children, your parents. It's very important for you to get a hold of that information. Determine the root cause of the actions. We are judging pride, selfishness, lack of love, greed, etc., and it will manifest itself in different ways. Next, determine situations in which we have been guilty of the very same root sins. Fourth, take steps to clear our conscience of these root sins. Fifth, determine to what degree we are responsible to help the one whom we judged. 
Now, there may be others that are more responsible, but as a brother and sister in Christ, we must help them in any way we possibly can. Now, I don't think that I have the right to go around and straighten other people's kids out. I may have a responsibility to go to somebody else's parents and say, hey, I really think there's a problem here. May I talk with you about it and share it with you? I saw this. Is there some way in which I can help this situation? Is there something that I've done to your son or your daughter to cause them to react like this? Can we sit down and talk with them about it? You see, it's the parents' responsibility. On our lake there in Longwood, recently we've had some real reactions about the boats being out on the lake water skiing. A couple of men there have purchased some lakeshore, a little strip of lakeshore, and suddenly they're concerned about owning the whole lake. And so they were out there screaming and cursing and rattling their fists, and they were shaking their fists at the young people that are out water skiing. And the next thing they found out that some of them were going around trying to get a petition that they would stop all ban all boats from the lake. Well, they ran into a brick wall. As they came around the lake, there were other people that were just as concerned that that lake stay open for the children to enjoy it. So when he brought the petition to me, I said, may I just speak with you for a moment and share something? This, this petition can do one of two things. It can either cause a great upheaval and feelings of neighbors against neighbors, which it, we ought not to have. Second, it can bring to our attention the fact that there, here is a problem that needs to be dealt with. Now we have to evaluate what would be the best way to deal with it. I said, number one, the first way to deal with it is not to let the kids go out there and just rampage up against people's shorelines and their docks and throw waves all over the, their shorelines and their docks. That's wrong. Second, it's not right for men to stand out there and curse and shake their fists at the boys and girls as they're driving around in the boat. I said, the next thing is we need to get together as a group of residents around the lake and sit down and say, hey, here is a specific problem. Here is a specific problem. Can we make some adjustments? Can we be careful of where we go and how far we stay away from the shore? Can we be very careful? If we see somebody out there fishing, stay away from that end of the lake and, and ski on the other end of the lake. And then let's make some agreement and get one another's names and addresses and telephone numbers. And if we see some kid out there that's not doing what he ought to do, don't scream and yell and cuss and shake your fist at him, but call his dad and say, may I come over and talk with you for a few moments? We've got a little problem here. And then have the dad call the young person in and say, hey, here's a problem. Let's deal with this thing. Determine to what degree we're responsible to help those whom we've judged. Now it's resolved itself. It looks like all the Lakeshore residents are going to get together. So there's not this animosity. You know, the Lord wants us to have peace and not, not turmoil. If responsible, determine if we have all the facts related to the situation. If not, get them from that person. That is a very, very important thing. And let me tell you something. As a father, many times I have failed in this area. Now, I will snatch a few words about something. It's happened to me time and time again. I'll hear a few words and I'll say, what? What happened? Did you do that? No. Are you sure you didn't? No. Then after a while I have to come back and say, will you please forgive me? I did it again. Popped off again. Will you please forgive me? Lord, you've got to deal with that area of my life. Isn't it easy to pop off before we get all the facts and to say something about someone? And that's why it's necessary for us to go to them. If we know someone has done something, we think someone has done something against us. Can't remember all the details, but I know of a man who was getting ready to speak one time and saw a person get up and heard them say something. He thought that the man said, fool. And walked out. And all the way through his message, he was thinking, why would he call me a fool? I know him. I've known him for years. Why would he get up and leave when I... And he, he could hardly keep his mind on his... And he came back afterwards. He said, why did you get up and call me a fool when I got ready to preach? 
He said, I didn't say fool. And he said, the people around me were starting to have foot on their sweaters, and they were holding their arms like this. And, and I said, somebody's been fooling with the thermostat. And so he said, I went up, I got up and went back, and I adjusted the thermostat. And I thought, while I'm out, I'll just stay back here so I won't interrupt him speaking again. But all the time, he was sure the man had called him a fool, and, and he couldn't even get any word in his message. And how many times have there been in your life and mine that we've thought someone has said something or thought someone has done something to us, and we have just gone on that assumption all the way through, and when we finally get to the place, we're all steamed up and all ready to pop our cork, and we find out that wasn't what he said at all. 